All right, you're listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the the founder of the Jew 3 Project. I'm joined um with I'm joined by um Reverend Darren Jones from New York, New York. And he's going to be our special guest today as we wrestle with the problem of evil and how process theology attempts to solve that problem. So welcome, Darren. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. <clears throat> We're um, honored to have you on this episode. So, Darren, before we start, just give us a little bit about your educational background and what you do now. So I currently serve as an associate pastor at the Greater Allen AME Cathedral of New York. I am the director of discipleship and Christian education here at the cathedral. It is an AME church located in Jamaica, Queens. I <clears throat> I was really blessed to um, be able to go to Cornell for undergrad. And I then got my Master's of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. And then I got a Master's of Theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. So with that being said, it's fair to say that you've been trained in process theology from Union and Princeton Theological Seminary, correct? Yes. Okay. So uh, let's dive right into it. Um, so if you've been listening to the past few episodes, we you know that we started at the beginning by talking about Jay-Z's song, um, Lost One, and how he dealt with his um, nephew being killed in a, in a car crash and how he questioned some things about God from that car crash. And he said, there's some things that can't be explained what caused it. And then the second episode, we raised the question with Pastor Jonathan Bennett, um, this idea of the problem with the problem of evil. And we live in a relative society, which doesn't really isn't really too keen on this idea of absolute truth and how it's hypocritical to ask the problem without having an absolute truth because your truth could be one thing. My truth could be another. So we can't define evil without absolutes. In the third episode, we finally looked at, okay, we've determined that there has to be absolute truth that's rooted in the scripture. And um, evil is a transgression of God's moral law. So even within scripture, there seems to be some, um, some kind of, tension between in the text on how much of our will is free and how does God use evil is he the author of evil through scripture so all of these questions are raised so we looked at some responses to this the first we looked at was the greater good response with pastor Cameron Triggs and he talked about this idea of God using evil and that evil was birthed in the world from the sin of Adam and but God is using evil he's not the author of evil but he's using it for a greater purpose in the next episode, we talked to Dr. Van Gaten, where he talked about the free will approach and saying that since man has free will, that evil must exist. Now we're talking about a more a different approach to the problem of evil that most liberal scholars take and that Darren is going to be talking about as, as, as soon as I'm done with my spiel. But the fact of looking at God's attributes, is he all, is he actually all knowing um, and so the liberal scholars tweaked the, his idea of being all knowing and develop this idea kind of that God is evolving in knowledge. And since he doesn't know what's going to happen, he's not responsible for evil. 
Um, would that be fair, Darren? So Darren's going to explain that. Well, process theology, and this is definitely a grotesque oversimplification, so please excuse me. Process theology very quickly attempt, well, process theology very quickly, in some regards, tries to assert that God is a learning God, that God is experiencing and engaging in new nuances of experience similar to how human beings are. And due to the fact that God, as process theology asserts, is experiencing or engaging in new nuances of reality or having new experiences that he currently, he previously did not have, God learns. And Mm -hmm. God also sees things occur that God did not previously know were going to occur. So because God is seeing and experiencing and having revealed to him new instances of reality and different decisions, he is not previously aware that those things are going to happen, but he, he reacts to those things happening. And this understanding of God being reactionary as opposed to being supremely omniscient and knowing every single thing that's going to happen before it happens somewhat absolves him of the guilt that some would try to affix to him for knowing that bad is going to happen and not preventing it forthright. Mm -hmm. So he's almost excused because he didn't know about it. Exactly. And this understanding that God processes through his his existence as human beings do is used to describe and used to explain how God can allow human beings to do bad things. And the answer to that question is God doesn't allow human beings to do bad things. God didn't know that human beings are going to do them. And because he didn't previously know that they were going to do them, he is only responsible for responding to those actions and not for preventing them beforehand. So biblically, how does this line up? Because I think that it's problematic um, when you say in Jeremiah's case, before um, you were born, I knew you Um, and just other different instances in how God orchestrates um, orchestrates um, people's interactions through the scripture. Um, He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew Peter was going to deny him. If he's learning, how can he know the future at the same time? Exactly. I think that personally, I do not ascribe to process theology because of the instances that you just described. There is in many instances instances of scripture an obvious foreknowing that God displays during his interaction with human beings that occurs in many instances. Another another most another popular instance is in Exodus, um, when God intentionally causes Pharaoh's heart to be hardened in order to gain himself greater glory through the Israelites ex through the Israelites emancipation. 
So I, so personally, I think that biblically, we see too many instances of God knowing ahead of time what's going to happen, and also too many instances of God knowing how human beings are going to respond to different stimuli for us to believe that God is not supremely aware of all that's going to happen before it happens. Mm-hmm. What, what, as far as process theologians, how do they kind of get out of that, those passages? Process theologians typically point to those as examples of God's foreknowing, but not, but they do not use those as a blanket rationale for God knowing everything. Okay. So in some instances he can know, but in some instances he, he doesn't know. Right. And also t- supremely in the instances in which he does know, God is orchestrating those instances. For instance, God orchestrated Judas to um, betray Jesus because Jesus needed to be betrayed in order to go to the cross. Mm-hmm. God orchestrates Pharaoh to um, to um, have his heart hardened so that God can gain greater glory by the Israelites' exodus. God knows Jeremiah in his womb, not necessarily knowing everything that Jeremiah is going to do, but knowing what God would have Jeremiah to do if Jeremiah follows God's will. But God does not necessarily know before Jeremiah is born whether or not he will follow his will. I got you. And I think um, it sounds crazy for process theologians to believe this in a sense, but there are some passages, and I was just reading this this morning for my devotional, Zephaniah chapter 3, and then the NLT version in verse 6, um, it said, in verse 5, I'll start, but the Lord is still there in the city, and he does no wrong. Day by day, he hands down justice, and he does not fail, but the wicked know no shame. I have wiped out many nations, devastating their fortress walls and towers. Their streets are now deserted. Their cities lie in silent ruin. There are no survivors, none at all. I thought surely they would have reverence for me now. Surely they will listen to my warnings. Then I won't have to strike them again, destroying their homes. But no, they go up early to continue their evil deeds. So it's, it's God is like, I, I assumed and I thought that me causing this destruction on them would cause them to turn their hearts, but it didn't. So I could see in a sense how one could take those passages and kind of vacillate with whether God knows all things or he, or does he call situations uh, assuming the outcome and then it could actually be potentially different. Right. Exactly. And that's some, and that's one of the arguments that process theologians or one of the scriptures rather that process theologians would use to argue for the fact that God um, that God's will or God's understanding um, is limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think another example that they would commonly use is the example of God going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it and Abraham being able to convince God not to do so if he could find um, a, a, a certain number of people that, that were righteous. Um, I believe that process theologians would argue that that malleability of God's will and that malleability of God's decision concerning judgment also shows that God is in process or in the process of evolving based upon mankind's actions or mankind's intercession. Um, 
one could argue that God knew ahead of time that Abraham would not find that 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 Abraham would not find that many people. But you know, we can go back and forth all day. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and I think that kind of tension in the text creates these extremes as far as um, theological positions. Uh, the extreme that God doesn't, to me, that would be an extreme position to take that God doesn't know everything um, from those passages instead of looking at it through the lens of God has real emotions could that be a and he kind of goes back and forth in himself in the passages and the fact that it's written because of the type of the genres of the day and the writing style especially in the Old Testament Exactly. I think looking at God's emotion and also understanding that God is a God of mercy and mercy and grace and that God is very concerned about ensuring that mercy and grace have their say and that mercy and grace are always extended um, to those whenever the opportunity arises. Um, even in the Old Testament, you know, um, we see where the, where the word of God says that God is slow to anger, but quick to unfailing love. And I think that in these instances where God changes his mind or where the intercession of um, a man or a woman of God would lead God to use mercy or to display mercy, um, we definitely see that God is a God of emotion, that God is a God that is in, that is supremely concerned and supremely invested in the, out, the outcome of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that should not, I don't think that should go to say that God does not know um, all that will happen. Mm-hmm. Because if you remove that from his character, he ceases to be God. In a sense. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, the importance of God and the importance, not the importance, but I think that one of the chief attributes of God or of a God, as the word is defined, is all knowing. Um is 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 omniscience is um is omnipotence and i think that reducing having a god that can be that can be stripped or deprived of those specific particular characteristics causes that god to not be god as you said perfectly yeah it causes it causes them to be a understanding or a um creation that is malleable or susceptible to its creation, um, to its creation, and not supreme over it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, in order to solve the problem of evil, we don't take away God's attributes. We just have to understand that His definition of evil could be potentially different from ours. Exactly, um, exactly, and also understand that God's understanding of good and God's journey to actualizing good supremely, universally, globally, probably extends beyond our ability to understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Because you would look at a passage in Zephaniah and see see the destruction he brought to the people and say that's evil. But he would look at it and say it's good because it's bringing forth um, repentance in the people. Exactly. And probably preventing them or keeping them from doing 
or performing greater acts of evil that we can even imagine. Exactly. So basically what we're saying is process theologians use their um, way to solve the problem is to alter God's attributes, but it's really an insufficient way because it robs God of being God. Exactly. And it, it, it forces God to change in our minds and not us to change. So the starting point is not God, it's us and our understanding versus understanding that God is above us and we must alter our understanding. Exactly. So usually we insert a hip hop song in each episode. This week we're doing Kendrick Lamar's Hood Politics. And actually this is the outro to most of his songs to his latest project to Pimpin' Butterfly. And I just want to play a little bit of it for you. You was conflicted, misusing your influence. Sometimes I did the same, abusing my power full of resentment, resentment that turned into a deep depression. Found myself screaming in the hotel room. I didn't want to self-destruct. The evils of Lucy was all around me. So I went running for answers until I came home. But that didn't stop survivor's guilt. Going back and forth trying to convince myself the stripes I earned. Or maybe how A1 my foundation was. But while my loved ones was fighting a continuous war back in the city, I was entering a new one. So Kendrick in his song, he's wrestling with him escaping um, Compton um, and and finding himself in this new area and this new wealth and his um, family and his friends being stuck um, in Compton. And he says, I remember you was conflicted, misusing your influence. Sometimes I did the same, abusing my power full of resentment, resentment that turned into deep depression, found myself screaming in a hotel room. I didn't want to self-destruct the evil of Lucy's, the evils of Lucy was all around me. So I went running for answers until I came home. But that didn't stop survivor's guilt going back and forth, trying to convince myself the stripes I earned or maybe how a one was my foundation was. But while my loved ones was fighting a continuous war back in the city. I what do you think about that? verse? I think that that particular verse deals, uh, deals with a more nuanced problem of evil. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the nuances of, of evil is why do some people experience it and some don't, or rather do some people experience it in certain aggravated degrees and some do not. I think another problem with evil is why do some of us survive it and others don't? Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the hardship that Kendrick is wrestling with, and I think wrestling with very, very well and very articulately, is really trying to understand why has he been delivered from the daily traumas of his environment and his friends have not and also wrestling and also wrestling with that reality as well as his responsibility for for his deliverance is also causing him some difficulty as well mm -hmm. do you think that's the most um for those who have who experience a lesser degree of evil than others you have when we look in the world and we see overseas especially with the massacre that just happened with the Christians being um, slaughtered in Kenya. And then we're in America and we're kind of chilling in a sense. 
our personal responsibility and the fact that they were they have to be persecuted and we're kind of safe those kinds of wrestlements or just personally in family have some people in your family like in Kendrick's family make it out of the a bad situation and and then others are stuck is that a, a constant pastoral issue that you face I think it's a I think it's an issue that a lot of people have and I think one thing that's really funny is typically you hear those who battle with less tangible, less life-threatening forms of evil, use the presence of harsher forms of evil to discredit the, the, the existence of God. Whereas you typically find those who are dealing with more tangibly difficult problems of evil praising God for the little that they have. And I, I think that it's significantly... E- easier for those of us who are not destitute who are not struggling and and who think that we don't need to depend on god for everything to question god and question god's actions and to discredit god because of the existence of evil then it then it is for those who need god mm-hmm. and who are depending upon god to survive day, day by day mm-hmm. i always find it interesting that those who suffer the least use suffering as a reason to discredit God's existence, whereas those who suffer the most um, in the midst of their suffering still grant God more admonition and more respect. Mm -hmm. It's almost like comfort gives you, seems to grant you indifference. Or arrogance. Yeah, that's true. Arrogance. That's a good point. Um, So, Darren, we thank you for your insight. It's been very helpful as we continue to wrestle with this problem. And definitely, like I said at the beginning of this series, it's not something that um, everyone will agree on because thousands and thousands of pages have been written just on this subject alone. Um, Theologians spend their whole life just wrestling with this problem. So, but thank you for um, being a part of this podcast, Darren. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I really, really appreciate it. We thank you for your insight and being um, on the show with us. As always, you can catch all of our episodes at www.jude3project.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Jude3project, on Instagram at Jude3project, on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude3project. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes by searching the Jude3project dot com 